Well, turn your Bibles to the book of Job, chapter 42. Uh, it is the last sermon in the book of Job, and um, I was talking to a friend of mine this week, and I said, I always feel like when we finish a book of the Bible, uh, it, it just always feels like you're leaving behind a good friend, um, a companion, someone who's walked with you, and, uh, and so it is with mingled joy and sorrow that we come to the end of Job. Uh, it's been good for my soul. I trust it's been good for yours as well. A couple of quick announcements. Buddy Smith is still recovering in the hospital uh, from his bypass surgery. So be in prayer for he and for Marsha. And uh, Buddy will probably listen to this later for his nurses. Um, uh, we love Buddy and so appreciate his quick wit and his humor and Thankful that God has seen him through the surgery, praying for his recovery. And my children show up in my sermons a lot as illustrations, so it's only right that I acknowledge that today my daughter turns 15. So, um, yeah, and, and so it, she's halfway to when she's allowed to start dating. So that's just, that's the way it is. So um, more time to accumulate more guns for me. So, uh, <laughs> no. So Job 42. Uh, here we're at the last chapter. There's, there's so much beauty in this chapter. This is one of those texts that I just acknowledge right from, from the get-go. There is no way, no way for me to do justice to the text. Uh, the, the layers, the, the beauty that's there uh, as we see the conclusion to what is one of the saddest stories in the Bible. And so maybe if we would start here, the final lesson this morning, let suffering change you but not define you. Uh, suffering is going to be chapters in our lives, and honestly, even for some folks, they're going to go through lots and lots of suffering, and it might even be feel like your life is in the minor keys. But let suffering change you, not define you. Instead, understand the reality that what matters the most in your identity, who you are, are not the painful things that you have experienced are not the sufferings that have happened or not happened, but the most important thing about you or me or anyone is are you in Christ or not? And as people who have repented from our sins and put our faith in Christ and were saved, uh, that's how that happens. You see who you are. You turn from your sin. You trust in Jesus. You say, I'm going to follow you. He gloriously saves you, and you embark on a journey of being his child in a very substantial way and growing and changing. And in part of that, there will be suffering, and that suffering is intended by God to change you. Even puzzling pain, even undeserved pain, is intended to change you and I. It's part of the process that God uses. But it should not define your identity. And one of the things we've seen with Job is how suffering has become so much a part of his life. How does he process through it here at the end? You know, we live in a world that can seem safe. And then suffering happens. Now, for some people, suffering happened at very early ages. Uh, in, in, in whether physically, relationally, uh, you have experienced suffering from a very young age. But, but for others, and, and we pray for most people, that that's not the case of their life. And, and in fact, our hope and our prayers that lots of people grow up in well-adjusted homes and with loving parents who invest in them. Uh, and so the hard thing then is when suffering can happen, it knocks them off their feet, and it's so unexpected. They don't know how to work through it. And, and honestly, even if you've experienced a lot of suffering, you sometimes don't feel like you do such a great job working through it. 
And the way we process and view this world, trauma can happen in a moment. I've done a lot of studying on trauma over the last year and a half, two years. And trauma can be very acute and can happen in an instant. It's the car wreck. It's the sudden diagnosis. But then there can also be the accumulated traumas of life, and it sends us reeling, and suddenly it feels like the world as we knew it is not like we used to know it anymore. I was reading a book on survival, and a guy talked about going to Hawaii. I've never been. Obviously, Nicolette grew up there. My wife's been a few times. Um, some of you, I know the Thorsons, I know, I know Tyler, so some of you have been there. I, I've never been there, but this guy talked about getting to Hawaii, and he was a middle-aged white guy, so I could identify with him. Uh, gets off the plane, checks in his hotel. First thing he wants to do is go hit the beach, you know, the beautiful beaches. He's headed down to the beach. He sees a family playing in the water over here and some other folks over here surfing. And so he sees a lifeguard on the way and just happens to say, hey, thanks for what you're doing. How's the water today? And the lifeguard just stood there for a long time, like an awkwardly long time. And then we gave him, began to give him all these details about, oh, well, here's where the breakers are, and this is where the rip current is, and if you can swim in this area, but if you go about 10 yards further, we're going to have to pluck you out of the water about a mile out, and here's this danger. You can swim if you've got kids over here, but don't go past this rock or they'll die. And he's just standing there like, what? And suddenly it's like, this is a dangerous place. After the fact, he discovered this. 75% of the people who drown in Hawaii are tourists. And 90% of those are white men between 35 and 50. Now, there's a lot in that statistic we could unpack. But what he points to, and accurately so, is what happens in our life when we think the world is one way, and then suddenly it's very, very different. Because the deep ocean waves that come in and hit Hawaii and the currents around it are not like anywhere else that some guy like me from the States has ever experienced before. It's not like Hilton Head or the Gulf. It's not even just like the Pacific. It's very, very different. And I think what happens lots of times in our lives is suffering hits us. And the world as we thought we knew it is very, very different. And it's frightening to us and it's even deadly to us. And that's exactly what we've seen happen to Job. A man with 10 kids, and he has all the wealth, and uh, all the respect, and he's doing all the good things. It all comes crashing down around him in a moment. And it just leaves him reeling. It leaves this godly man reeling. It's a reminder then that when we come to the end of Job, there is a New Testament reflection on him. And so we understand from the New Testament, we are told to look back and learn from Job. And specifically, we're told to learn this in James chapter 5. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now, those are stunning statements. That when we come to the end of Job, we're supposed to learn what it means to be steadfast? Well, we've, we've taken almost 30 sermons to work through Job. We've seen Job question. We've, we've seen Job in agony. We've seen Job suffering. We've seen Job not understanding. We've seen Job suicidal. And none of that, none of that means he wasn't steadfast. In other words, you can be steadfast and questioning, suffering, confused, and even 
to the point of depressed and suicidal. How can that be? Because where you are at in your story right now is not the end. And so we see Job now at the end. And so we want to learn from Job. What does steadfastness really look like at the end? And how do we see the compassion and the mercy of God? And so I think this morning we can actually work through it in three broad sections. First of all, through Job's repentance. We looked at these verses some last week, and so I'm not going to go as deep in them as I normally would this week, but, but we, we spent some time with them last week, but there's some things I skipped, but, but so we want to work through it. So Job 42, if you have your Bibles, follow along with me as I read first six verses. Here's Job's response. This is his response to God's second speech with Leviathan and Behemoth, and that there's evil in this world, but even that exists within God's sovereignty, and while it's outside of his moral will, so it's wicked and sinful, he uses it even to his own ends. How does Job respond to it? Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Most believe the course of events that we've studied in the book of Job took about a year to transpire in totality. There's lots of reasons we, we make that guess, but I think that's a fair uh, attempt, fair estimate. It, it's not, uh, there's a verse that says, but there are many indications that would seem to point to that. He's moved to silence, but now he is saying things that are praiseworthy of God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted in verse 2. Remember last week we talked about Job has never questioned God's sovereignty. Job has never questioned is God in control. Job never came up with some heretical belief system to excuse God. There's so many that are out there now. Open theism. God doesn't actually know what's about to happen. He's just the wisest, most powerful being that could exist. So God does a really good job of guessing what's about to happen. That's open theism. It's a heresy. God is so zealous for the free will of man that he chains himself, he puts himself in bondage, so evil happens because men do it. God stands back, he's sad about it, but he's given them the freedom for that. I just hate to tell you that ceases to be sovereignty at that point. It's another heretical perspective. Well, Job's never questioned it. What Job has questioned is if you're sovereign and since you're sovereign, how is this happening? Job had no category for the existence of Satan. Job saw good, he saw evil happen, and so he assumed with his friends that if you did bad things, you got bad things, and if you did good things, you got good things, and, and so God was just dispensing out of some morality-driven equation. One plus one equals two. We do it all the time with all kinds of things in life. We do it in our parenting. Well, I did this, and I did this, and I did this. I, I took them to school, and I celebrated holidays, and I was kind to them, and I disciplined them. How in the world did my kid go rogue, as though one plus one equals two? We do it in our physical. I, I ate the right foods. I did my exercise. I did what the doctor said, and, and yet here I have this health problem. We do it in our jobs. I, I did my job. I showed up early. I stayed late. I worked hard. I did everything my boss wanted me to do. Where's my raise? Where's my promotion? Where's my respect level? 
We do with all kinds of life, and it's so jarring to us to realize we live in a world that we are to do righteous things, we are to do mature things, we are to parent well, we are to do marriage well, we are to do friendship well, we are to do church well, and there's no guarantee in any of it that it's going to turn out like we hope, want, or expect. And so we have to learn as believers, we don't put in to get out. We don't love God to get from God. We love God because he first loved us. And so Job has been awakened to the reality that there is this evil force in the world. There's the Leviathan and the behemoth, and this operates within God's sovereignty, but God limits it. It's not that God is limited by evil. He limits evil. Satan says, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do the other? And God says, you can do this far and no further. You can do this far and no further. God limits evil, not, not God being limited by evil. And Job didn't understand this before. Now he understands it. And when he uses this phrase, your purposes, he now gets this. I don't, okay, what does he not get? He doesn't get that this was a cosmic level warfare and his name was uttered in heaven. We get that from Job 1 and 2. Job didn't have that yet. What he gets, though, is a trust that a holy, loving, good, kind God is yet going to use his suffering for his own glory. And Job's okay with that. Can you be okay with that? Can I be okay with that? That sometimes the idyllic paradise feels like a death trap. And so how do I enjoy the idyllic paradise while being terrified of drowning in the midst of my sorrow? The plans of God include what Job has experienced, and it matches who he knows God to be in his love, kindness, justice, and authority. So he says, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, that actually gives great comfort. It should give great comfort to any believer because we know at the end of the day, God is a just God. He's a kind God. He's a loving God. He's a holy God. And so while it may not work out on my time frame, I know, I'm guaranteed it will work out on his time frame. And his purposes will match his character. Secondarily, he uses this phrase, he hides counsel without knowledge in verses 3 and 4. This is an admission that Job had done the equation of his suffering. He had factored in God's character and it had come up with the wrong answer. This is Job admitting that Elihu, the good friend, and God were right, and Job was misreading what was going on. Now, we can give Job a much greater pass because he didn't have the information that you and I have from those first two chapters of the book. Job still doesn't know those things, but that's actually helpful for us. I think that's helpful for us because I have a very difficult time living in the reality of just how deeply God loves me. And it's a profound truth because I think we know how unlovable we are. And so for Job to be confused, for us to read Job and see God mentioning Job, there's no one on the earth like my servant Job. What would you give for God to talk talk about you that way? There's no one on the earth like my servant Stephen. That's just mind-boggling. I just would I, like, in my mind, you know, it's, I was joking with my son the other day, we're driving around, um, and we were naming favorite songs. See, so he would name a genre, Dad, what's your favorite song, top five songs in this, and top five songs in this, top five bands, and so I'm like, we're like arguing back and forth in a fun way, father, son, and, and talking about it, and, and at one point, he, he mentioned a group and a song, I said, oh, they don't even crack the top ten for me. Look, I would be, I'd like to crack the top million of God's list of servants, right? That'd be pretty good, right? I just cracked the top million. of. Here's my top million of, of my choice of servants. 
Really, who's number a million? Steve. He just squeaked it in. I'm thrilled. Because I know my heart, and I know how sinful I am. And I know how prone I am to wander and to doubt, right? I know how pr- it's Christmas season. I know how prone I am as a pastor who is celebrating and excited about celebrating the first advent of Jesus. I know how prone my own heart is toward materialism. To finding a sense of security and safety in stuff and in things. It's shameful, but it's true. And so it's, a, so it's mind-boggling to me that God would look at Job and look at the earth and in the throne room of heaven talk about Job. So it's mind-boggling to me to realize that Job, he may have a leg up on me in righteousness and blamelessness. I believe that all day long. But he has no leg up on me in relational intimacy. God didn't love Job more than he loves me. He doesn't love Job more than he loves you. He doesn't. He loves each one of us in a personal, deep, and passionate way. And, and so what Job has come to is this understanding, when I factor the equation of my suffering, and I assume then God is angry with me for out reason, and God is just wrathful towards me, and God is just smacking me around. And um, we say it even in ways like this. Maybe you I, I know some of you had, just take this as a very, very soft, tender, I'm in the camp with you rebuke. I'm so dense, God has to hit me with a two-by-four. Don't raise your hands. How many of you have said or thought that before? I'm, I'm with you, right? That's not true. That's not true. God is not looking at you and me and going, oh, let me deal with that Steve again. Whack! That's not true. It's not true. And Job has done the equation, and he's now realized that in his puzzling pain, he had been drifting from questions to accusations about God. He, go to the next one. Verse 5, he says, I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now I see you. It's helpful to have a prezi when you don't click it. But he says, hearing has been made sight. What he said is, I heard about God. I've now tasted or experienced truths about God, and now I see God clearly. It goes back to Elihu's challenges to Job, where there's a vision of God after the storm. And this is so helpful to us, as we saw last week, I just want to remind you, the storm was not the death of the kids, the loss of his health, the loss of his wealth, the loss of his wife. That wasn't the storm. And the reason I say that is because he finds comfort while he's still in what we would think of as the storm. Do you know the deepest storm of puzzling pain is, does God really love me? That's, you've you got to get down to there with folks. We've got to get down to there with our own heart. Job's forever going to live with the scars of what he has experienced, just like you and I walk around with lots of hidden scars. Everyone in this room does. And yet Job says, I now see God, and he sees God as not just sovereign, but wisely, goodly, kindly in control. None of the things have changed for Job yet. You, you know, many of you know the end of the story here. He's going to get like double back, but, but none of that has happened yet. And yet he sees who God is. Job is telling us that the greatest storm is the doubt of God's love for him. And that has now passed and he sees God. We are not to be defined by our pain, by our suffering, or our grief. We must come to be defined by our identity in Christ. And then lastly, he says, I despise myself. 
Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. What exactly is Job despising? Well, here we can rely on what Elihu and God said to Job over the last several chapters. This is important because I'm going to say something that's going to grate on some people. Out of Job's suffering and ignorance about the world, the way the world works, he has accused God of not being just, kind, or good. Job didn't, Job didn't know or understand the existence and reality of Satan. Job didn't understand that the world doesn't run by do good, get good, or do bad, get bad. And yet Job has been suffering intensely. We want to give ourselves and others a pass when we do things out of ignorance. What Job has realized is that in his ignorance, he has said things about God that are not true. And now, as he has seen God in the storm, his assessment of God was wrong, and he is ashamed of it. First traffic ticket ever, speeding ticket ever got was I was speeding in a school zone. It was the day after Christmas. I was not really aware that it was a school zone where I was at, and I remember telling the officer that. It did not move him that I was ignorant of it. That did not impress him at all. And so I did what, what you're supposed to do when you get your first speeding ticket, and you go, I went to court. That's a fun and pleasant experience terrifying the judge started the session telling us as the judge no matter what we saw on our ticket he had the freedom to levy almost whatever fine or consequence he wanted to by our appearance in court it's true that was even more terrifying and so it had been several weeks if not a few months since i had first gotten the ticket so i had argued with the officer i didn't know it was a school zone i got in front of the judge and i said i'm guilty it was a school zone he said, did you know it was a school zone? I said, it doesn't matter. It was, and I should have. And he was like, you're right. And he reduced my fine and took off the points. Ignorance, ignorance is no defense. That's what grates on people. And in our suffering, lots of things are going to come out of us. We're squeezed and things are going to come out of our heart. Things that we didn't even know about ourselves will come out. And there will be a temptation to want to say, but I didn't know any better. That's not Job's reaction. Job's reaction is to own what he thought was wrong. And he's ashamed of it. Now, as we saw last week, the word repent there in the Hebrew structure is never translated as repent anywhere else in the Old Testament this way. It's always translated as I'm comforted. And I'm convinced that the better translation would be that here. I'm comforted. I'm ashamed. And I'm yet then I'm comforted in the dust and ash. Why is he comforted? Because he recognizes these truths about God. He is sovereign. He's providential. And he is good. He's not angry with Job. He's not wrathful at Job. Instead, Job's suffering and your suffering and my suffering is part of this universal level cosmic warfare whereby God is showing this. I love my children because I love them. And they love me because they love me. I don't love them and manipulate to get from them. And they don't love me to get from me. The love is true and it's pure. And God is putting that on display through the very first book of the Bible that has ever been written. As they say these things, though, even about Job coming to understand his wrong thinking and 
talking about how ignorance is no defense. I'm deeply concerned like Elihu. Elihu said, my fear is, I don't want to put greater weight on you, Job. My fear this morning is that even when I say these things and they are true and they are necessary to hear, I don't want to put additional weight on sufferers. So I want to remind us that Elihu was quick to listen and slow to speak. I want to remind us that a good friend believes and defends. He believed Job and he defended his righteous life. He didn't try to misread or read into who Job was. He believed him. Elihu only addressed where Job was accusing God, not where he was questioning God. He doesn't rebuke Job even for his sadness. God, when he deals with Job, is gentle, loving, and yet he speaks truth. There is this, the, the utterance of truth is not in and of itself wrong or harsh or evil. In fact, if you love someone, you must speak truth to them. But we just have to acknowledge that there are ways to do it that are righteous and ways that are sinful. God course corrects some errors in Job's thinking while affirming his personal relationship with Job as he addresses him directly. God and Elihu found ways to communicate to Job. You are loved, Job. God expresses no anger toward Job. Instead, God expresses his zeal and his power to defeat the kind of evil that's afflicting Job, and he will show who he's really angry toward. And the only time you see God's wrath unveiled in Job, it's not the death of his kids, it's not the loss of his health, it's not the loss of his wealth, it's not when Job is depressed, it's not when Job is suicidal, it's not when Job is questioning. What makes God angry is Satan and the people who would say his words but not toward his servant not toward job not toward the sufferer and so then that takes us then to the second section of chapter 42 and it's god's rebuke we can see this in verses 7 through 9 now there's a lot that eliphaz bildad and zophar have said about god about god to job that's terribly wrong Instead, what God gives us, he doesn't go itemized. He just gives an all-encompassing angry rebuke. And so I just want to ask before I read this section, is there anything here that you and I can learn? As we come to the end of Job, last lessons, is there anything that we can learn about dealing with other people that are experiencing puzzling pain? Verse 7, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, why does he address him only by name? He's the oldest. He's kind of the representative. Clearly, he's the ringleader. My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Notice that Elihu is missing. Elihu does not deserve his rebuker's anger because what Elihu said was right and comforting. But these other three yokels, I don't know, that's a Baltimore term, losers, creeps, they get an angry rebuke. Let's, let's categorize this in two ways. There's, a, there's an old movie, um, dating myself, but it has this famous phrase in it. Michael Corleone says this about revenging his father's death. It's not personal, it's strictly business. 
Uh, the quote is actually then repeated in the famous rom-com, You've Got Mail. You guys are getting a pop culture lesson this morning, right? It actually is a quotation from a 1930s mob accountant. And actually, this is what the argument of the friends has been about God. It's not personal, Job. It's just business. And what God is telling them, first of all, in his rebuke to them, is it's not business. It's personal. I've got a real problem with you guys personally. See, all along the way, they've told Job, Job, you're making too much of this. You're acting like God is out to get you, like God has his finger on you, like God is angry with you. God wants to punish you. No, Job, if you hadn't stolen the money from the old women, if you hadn't just done whatever you'd want to do, if you hadn't uh, been, been uh, deceitful in your finances. Now, none of that had happened. They were just guessing at what sins he must have done. If you hadn't done all those things, then you wouldn't have lost everything. And clearly you're not even as wicked as your kids because God killed them in a moment, but he's given you a chance to repent. It's not personal, Job. It's just business. And what God is saying is, no, anytime I'm dealing with people, it's personal. And I'm going to deal with you personally. And so he calls them out by name. We talked earlier in the sermon about what would it feel like or it's hard to wrap our minds around God uttering our name in glory. It's hard to wrap our minds around Satan, the accuser, accusing you and I before the throne of God and Jesus Christ actually uttering your name or my name before God to defend us. But the Bible says that's exactly what he does for those who are saved, for those who are his children. He's, he defends us from the accuser of the brethren. It's hard to imagine our name uttered that way. It's much easier for me to imagine my name uttered this way. But what a terrifying prospect. The portrayal that God is nothing but numbers. People are pawns on a chessboard. They are mathematical equations. Job, you've made this too personal. God was just doing what God does. And so God deals with this concept that it's a very personal in two significant ways. First, he dresses them independently of Job. And he doesn't lump them in with Job. So if they had been sitting there listening to God speak to Job and learning, and it's our presumption they have been because of how quickly they repent here, but if they had been learning and processing, you could see these guys thinking, oh, we're all learning the lesson together. And God, by calling them out, makes them individually own their behavior. Have you ever hidden in the crowd? You ever been in one of those moments where a group of people are standing there and one, maybe one person is doing something they shouldn't be doing, but you lack the courage, which is biblically to say the love to say or do the right thing. And you, you pacify yourself. Well, I wasn't the ringleader. And the reality is, most commonly, people take silence as affirmation and agreement. When God calls them out by name, it is a reminder to you and to me that as we deal with suffering saints, people experiencing puzzling pain, we bear individual responsibility for how we will love and care for them. Well, that's the church's job. You're not wrong. But last time I checked, we even teach little children, when you open the doors, there's all the people. 
The church is people. We bear individual levels of responsibility for care, compassion, truth, speech to the sufferer. By calling them out by names, it is a reminder to us that it's not just this grand equation, check the box kind of living. Secondarily, he makes it very personal because he sends them to Job for intercession. Now, be, before these guys would have thought, well, let me just check the box, right? If I want to get, if I'm on God's bad side, and suffering must mean I'm on His bad side. That's why these guys thought. That's why lots of people think. This is why there would be lots of people like they're never in church, but then something really terrible happens, and they're all in church, right? And then um, the terrible thing goes away, and they're not in church anymore. And it's a, and like I just want to be clear. Part of that mindset can be God has drawn us closer to Him, but it gets revealed. Eventually, that's less relational. It's more circumstantial for us. 9-11 did that in our nation, right? Um, everybody, let's go to church. God's angry at our nation. Oh, then, you know, we win the war. Hey, let's drip, right? So, but that's not how God is. It's personal. It's a personal relationship with God. And, and so when he sends that these guys would have thought, well, let me just go offer my little sacrifice and I'm good. Let me check the box. God, I believe. But he makes them go to Job. He pushes them to the man that they condemned. He pushes them back to the guy that they judged. He pushes them to the guy that they thought that they were better than. And it becomes very, very personal for them. Job, can, can you help us out here? We thought God was angry at you. He wasn't even angry at you, and look at all you've lost. Can you help us out here by interceding for us? It's a reminder to us that Job is an image, a type of Jesus Christ. We look upon Jesus and we esteem him stricken, smitten. We, we look on Jesus in our lostness and we're like, well, I, that was his choice. And God clearly is angry at him, not understanding the things Jesus experienced, the suffering he experienced was for your sin and my sin. And when we see that and we're humble before it, we're broken before it, we repent. And who do we run to and ask him to forgive us? We go to the intercessor. We go to Jesus. This is a type. This is God telling us the ultimate one who would experience innocent suffering and puzzling pain is Jesus. And you must run to him for forgiveness. The one we would condemn is the one we so desperately need. Secondarily, and this is really dating some of us, Beretta. He had the famous line, do the crime, do the time. My dad loved that show back in the day. This predates me. This is mid-70s. I'm like two. But that was his phrase. If you're going to do the crime, then do the time. Don't whine about the punishment. Man, it's a, how many of you get it? Don't raise your hands, right? How many of you get annoyed when somebody whines about their punishment? Oh, no. I can't believe the judge sentenced me. I just get these kind of, you know, when I work construction, I worked with the cream of the crop, right? Um, that's not knocking construction. I did construction for years, but like 12 of the, out of the 12 guys that worked, like 11 of them were felons, right? And the one guy, I mean, he was always whining because he had lost his license because he had to go do his check-in with his PO. I learned all kinds of lingo, but his PO, I spent three weeks, I didn't know what a PO was, his parole officer supposed to go in and do uh, drug tests, and he got busy because actually he got drunk the night before, and he knew he'd fail his drug test, and so he lost his license. He's always whining. And I remember I would get so annoyed with this guy. I'm like, quit whining about suffering what you brought on yourself. So the ironic thing is here, these guys have said that same kind of attitude toward Job, but Job was an innocent sufferer. 
And so God tells them something fascinating. Did you notice how many animals he tells them to go and kill? It's a lot. Do you know what the normal sacrifice was? When God enacts the Mosaic law, you know what it was? One animal. One. These guys, bring me seven oxen, seven rams. It is so over the top. Do you know how much blood you would have spilled on the ground in this moment? The earth would be soaked in it from these guys' sin. They grew increasingly frustrated with Job, demanding, Job, own whatever you've done. Then you can be restored. This is a terrifying communication of God's level of anger towards them. It's like it would take the lives of seven or 14 animals, and the language is a little ambiguous. Is that 14 for everybody? Was it either seven bulls or seven rams individually? We're not entirely sure. What we know is it's like triple the normal amount. It's him telling you this is how bad the sin is. They looked at Job and they thought he lost his wife and his health and his wealth and all of his kids because of some financially mishandling. Whatever these guys have said about God to Job is so bad that it would require more sacrifice than it would be required for the entire nation of Israel later. That's how bad it is. What is it? And this is terrifying. It's to put a stumbling block in front of a hurting Christian. It's to rub salt in the puzzling pain wounds of a believer. God doesn't get angry at Job through all of his questions and even his accusations, but God's anger burns deeply against those who follow him and yet speak the words of Satan to the hurting. It's when we believe things like this, that if you ask questions, you're wrong. Questions are not the same as accusations. It's the belief that God is a formula. It's the belief that I'm doing well because that means God's happy with me. You're doing poorly means you've done something to make God mad. It's the belief Job must have deserved this. There is a category for puzzling pain in this world in the lives of Christians. And it is simply this reality that there are times when God will bring pain into your life and my life that makes no sense, that's absolutely separate from anything we've done so that it might showcase once again what it's like when the innocent suffer. And if we don't have a category for that, we will end up sinning against the sufferers. It's the belief that Job deserved this. It's the belief that God is wrath-filled toward his children and out to get them. And all of those errors, their coldness, their distance, their silence when they shouldn't have been silenced, and their speaking when they should have been silent, their warped theology, their heretical belief system, their lack of physical tender care, their lack of physical compassion, their harshness, their anger, their vitriol, their frustration, they're using his pain against him. I still can't wrap my mind around the one friend who looked at him and said, well, clearly you're not as bad of a sinner as your kids because God killed them in a moment. I'd feel really guilty, but I think there's room for righteous anger against that guy because God is very angry. 
How dare, how dare you? I actually heard a preacher one time make reference to moms suffering miscarriages. And he actually said from the pulpit something along these lines. Because you were on birth control at the start of your marriage, you didn't want God's children then. This is maybe God's way of telling you, you don't get children now. I look back now and I'm like, I don't know how lightning didn't come down right in that moment. It is astounding the wicked things Christians will say to one another, isn't it? It is shocking the wicked things I have thought about other believers that are suffering. And we should be ashamed and terrified. May God give us the compassionate heart of Jesus. And so we have this, and God, in this way, you start to realize this is the beginning of God setting things right. You know, it's like, nope, we're going to rewind this, and I'm going to fix where everybody's been wrong. And that preps us then for this last section. For this last and final section of Job and its suffering's results. Verse 10, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Let me be really clear here. This is not anybody. <laughs> we were talk, I was talking to a friend a few weeks ago. Um, there are people who actually read this this way. Because Job interceded for them, now God gave Job back. If you believe or think that, that tells me two things about you. Number one, you have not actually read the book of Job. Because that mindset is what God has just rebuked. <laughs> Number two, you don't understand what real restoration is. This is simply a timeline marker. This is the way the events happened. It's important because if God had not rebuked them before this had happened, they would have assumed when Job said, I despise myself, that that's why he got back. It's a timeline marker. That's all that's happening here. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Yemima, the name of the second daughter, Kekaiza, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuch. I've tried my best at the Hebrew. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. These last verses of Job are such a mingling of joy and sorrow. <laughs> Obviously, on one hand, we see that every area of Job's life that has been touched by sorrow experiences restoration. It's an obvious doubling of all that he had lost. And the text gives us specifics of that in a couple different categories. First of all, you notice the extended family comes back. I mean, 
This tells you for him to have so much family to come and show him compassion and sympathy and to give him wealth that obviously then opens your eyes to realize some of Job's suffering has been the abandonment of people that he thought were his friends and loved him. Where have these people been all along? It's like they thought Job's suffering was contagious. They didn't want to get anywhere near it. But now they are restored and they, because of God's intercession and clearly the story would have spread, they begin to realize they would have thought wrong and they come tenderly and humbly and they begin to love him. Where he had been surrounded by accusers who claimed to be his friends, he's now surrounded by family that love and support him. He's restored financially double what he's lost. He's restored in health with a long life because the way the language is structured, that's why most people believe that when Job begins, he's probably 70, he lives another 140 years. And yet there would have remained the scars of all that had happened. The trauma of the losses, the emotional scars of the loss of his children. There's an absence of mentioning his wife. For the last statement in Job to be about his wife, one of really rebuke. She's acting and behaving like one of the foolish women. And for her last statement to be given curse God and die. We don't know if he brings the first wife back or if this is a second wife after abandonment. We don't know. We cannot be dogmatic. My opinion is this is new wife. Her lack of naming, her lack of mentioning, her lack of rebuke, her lack of presence all the way up until this point would seem to indicate that. I can't be dogmatic, just my opinion. Just my opinion. But then we get to this and he says that it's been restored, but suffering would have changed Job. How should you and I think about Job and the puzzling pain and our own suffering then? What do we do when we come to this moment and we realize that if any normal person, and I'm going to put Job in normal category, although he's extraordinary in a lot of ways, do you think his heart rate might have elevated a little bit the next time he heard a windstorm? When a windstorm had blown in the house and killed all of his 10 kids? I think any normal person would have. And there's one thing I love about reading the Bible and studying it, you get to Hebrews 11, the Hall of Faith, is the Bible's not filled with uh, Clark Kent super saints. It's filled with actually very normal people. People like you and me. Samson makes the Hall of Faith. Samson you know, violates every part of the Nazarite vow. Samson makes it. Abraham, hall of faith, lies about his wife, leaves her exposed to assault. She's in. Like the Bible's actually full with very normal people. See the scars, he's, he gets 10 children. Well, he had 10 children to begin with. Yeah, those 10 children are eternity. You get the oxen back, you get... The, the camel's back, you, you get the donkey's back, you don't get all the servants that were killed. The, the scars would have been there. There's, yes, could God have given him fresh baby skin? Sure, he does that with Naaman later in the Bible. But if Job is the first book of the Bible is intended to help us understand and process suffering, there's a couple things that we have to know then, that the scars of our suffering stick with us. But then secondarily, what's up with the restoration? Because I don't know about you, but not everything that I've suffered in my life has been fixed. 
Where's my double? It hasn't shown up yet. And so how do, we, how do we process through that? What can we learn and how should we think about it? And so let me give us a few ways here as we finish this morning, as we finish Job. First of all, restoration happens. Job has been unique in so many ways. He's an extreme example. He's noted for his blamelessness and righteousness. He's an extreme example of suffering. He's an extreme example then of restoration. But here, you and I are still dealing with puzzling pain in our lives. God hasn't spoken out of the the heavens to you and I. And so three things I think should help us. Number one, number one, Job is comforted while he's still suffering. It's so important to understand he is comforted in the midst of the storm. Because he's comforted supremely with this truth. God loves him. I want to tell you this. God loves you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He has not abandoned you. Oh, child of his, if you have turned from your sin, you have put your faith in Christ, understand you are his adopted child. He does not look upon you with wrath. He is not after you with the, with the terrors of hell. His son Jesus has suffered all of that for you. He loves you. He loves you. The fiercest storm of the sufferer is why is God so hatred towards me? Why does he have so much hatred towards me? And he doesn't. I just want to tell you, you can receive comfort of God even in the midst of all the circumstantial storms of life. Secondarily, our focus here on earth, temporally on earth, is to be contentment with God's care. God says to be content with food and clothing. Paul says that he learned contentment. Contentment doesn't come naturally. It's a part of a learned process of walking with Jesus. Thirdly, Job is a type of Christ as an innocent sufferer. If Job doesn't get restoration at the end, it actually breaks the image. It's like this. It'd be like if Jesus was left in the tomb. What story is that? Who cares? Job experiences restoration here in this moment and in this life. And I'm not telling you that God doesn't ever give back here. I'm not telling you, I'm not telling you that God doesn't ever restore health. I'm not, I'm not telling you that he doesn't ever fix relation. I'm not telling you that he doesn't ever fix banking. I'm not telling you he doesn't ever fix health diagnosis. I'm not telling you that he doesn't ever do that. I am telling you, though, it's not promised here. But if Job doesn't get it here, it leaves us with no hope. The restoration is actually a type of the resurrection. What does Jesus say? When we have questions about why am I suffering so much, why? You know, Jesus said that people are going to lie about us. He said people are going to lie about us, revile us, despise us. They're going to persecute us. It's like people are going to destroy my name and reputation. People are going to destroy my relationships. What am I supposed to do with that? He says, rejoice and be exceeding glad because great is your reward in heaven. If people are lying about you and despising you when you're doing what's right, I want you to know something. You're on the right team. And the enemy is after you. And God says, great is your reward in heaven and you should rejoice because it should convince you when you and I do what is righteous and right and people lie about us and they seek to destroy us, all we've done is made the very enemies of God mad. And I want you to know this from Job. Leviathan and behemoth, watch out. But for you and me here, 
Great is my reward in heaven. Questions about, God, I don't know if I can make it through this. I don't know how I'm going to do this. They're answered in faithfulness. He says what? One day in Matthew 25, 21, he's going to say, enter into my rest. Well done, thou good and faithful serving. You know what? God is not calling you to these extravagant displays to win the world. You can't do it. God is not calling you always to be able to do everything that you have a vision for, you have a hope for. Sometimes he's calling you just to pick up a cup of cold water and offer it to someone in Jesus' name. And he says, just be faithful. Oh, for the courage of the depressed and the discouraged and the people that are riddled with pain and sorrow who simply do the next right thing. The rewards will fall down in heaven. Questions about who am I really? Who are you really? Are you really in Jesus? Oh, I don't know if we can trust him. He says in Colossians 3, 4, when Jesus shall appear, then it shall be revealed who we really are because we will, we will appear with him in glory. We should think about Job's restoration pointing to Jesus' resurrection, which points to our ultimate restoration. Suffering changes where we fix our hope. And we don't fix it here and now. So ironically enough, while Job experiences all this restoration, can I just tell you at the end, what does the last verse say? And Job died. He still dies. It ain't all about here. Secondarily, we should live in the reality of a broken world. Now we have this very strange section that I would argue is some of the most beautiful verses in all of Job. Verse 14, he called the name of the first daughter Humaima, the name of the second Keziah, the name of the third Karen Hapuch. In all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance among the brothers. What on earth is going on in those verses? Like, like why? None of the other daughters got named in the first chapter. None of the 20 sons even get their name mentioned. These three girls get mentioned, and we're told they're beautiful. Now, all things being equal, all things being equal, last time I checked, I've met, never met a dad who thought his daughter was ugly anyway. So, like, why does it matter? Why does it matter what their names are? Why does it matter their inheritance? Why does it matter their beauty? Give us a couple ways. First of all, he gives them an inheritance. Job lives in the reality of a broken world, and he gives them an inheritance. Job's suffering has changed him to make him even more compassionate, more tender. Women did not normally get an inheritance. It's a patriarchal society. Their, their only hope for financial support would have been getting through a husband, maybe some kind of a dowry. And then in absence of that, because of other people's just, frankly, kindness, here's, here's money. They'd be reduced to beggars. But Job gives his daughters an inheritance, a portion of the inheritance. This, is, this tells us something. Job's suffering has changed him. And Job realizes this. We live in a world and bad things can happen. And if really bad things happen to my daughters, I want them taken care of too. It changed him. It lived, he now lives in the reality of living in a broken world. Suffering should make us more like God in our compassion and our planning, and our generosity, and our love. There is a truth. They've done study after study. Here's what's shocking. Poor give more. People that have suffered 
are more tender toward the suffering of others. They're more compassionate toward the suffering of others. And, it, and, it's, and we, it's borne out in the New Testament that we are to comfort others with the same comfort we have received. Suffering should change us, not define us. That's why the inheritance is there. But then why the names? Got these three names. The first one is a reference to turtle doves. And it's like Job is saying, I've heard your sweet song. Now, why does it matter that they're beautiful? This is what he's about to tell us. As Job has now gone forward in these other 140 years that he's lived, he's looking back on everything that he suffered. And he's begun to see the hidden beauty of God in it. And what did Job say? I have heard of you with my ears, remember? And he is now saying, I have heard the beautiful song of God. Keziah is a beautiful spice, aromatic and tasty. He is saying, I've tasted of your goodness, God. And then thirdly, not shocking, is a reference to beautiful eye makeup that women would wear. It's a way of saying, I'm captivated by your eyes. I have heard of you. I have tasted you. I have seen you. What will the scars of your suffering be like for you? Will you hide them? What if, like Job, when we process through the things that we've suffered in the puzzling pain, instead of being bitter, we trust? I think the battle scars of a wounded warrior can actually point to their courage. I think the burn scars of a fireman can point to his heroism. I think the emotional scars of a wounded person can point to the fact that they're a survivor. I think the spiritual scars of a servant can point to faithfulness. Job isn't bitter. He's thankful for how his suffering has led him to hear, taste, and see God in a beautiful way. Suffering should change us to be thankful for the storms that let us experience his power to calm our troubled hearts. Charles Spurgeon famously suffered with deep, deep depression, suicidal level depression, even as he's pastoring essentially what is the world's first megachurch. So he'd preach multiple times on Sunday. On Monday, he would get in his carriage. He would ride out to his Anglican pastor friend's home in the country estate. He would smoke a big fat cigar. He didn't know about lung cancer. And he would read all these clippings of editorial comics that would have been posted in the London papers that week because he believed that, that a merry heart does good like a medicine. He would relax and he would try to embrace Ecclesiastes, the good gifts of this world. And then he would go back to doing what he was supposed to be doing and he would be faithful. And he famously said this, I kiss the wave. I kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of Christ. Let suffering change you, but never define you. Let it make you hear and taste and see that God is good.